0: Well, as we've been doing this series on marriage, I have asked of you to feel free to ask any questions that you have, uh, and that if you were didn't want to uh, submit them to me personally, you were able to do so uh, anonymously and stick it in my box. And I've been receiving your questions and am uh, infusing them into uh, these lessons. I plan to keep moving forward through 1 Corinthians 7 as our general framework, and today we're going to look at the first seven verses. But I tell you that so that when we're done with these seven verses, if there was something else in that section that you still had a question about, it's your opportunity to give me the question or to... Put it back in the box and I can uh, get to it and infuse it into next week's lesson to make sure that we get to that. I also want to make note that it is my intention that next week on Wednesday, uh, we will uh, begin to start uh, studying 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 in the Wednesday class. Uh, I believe we'll finish Galatians this this Wednesday night. Uh, And so that'll give me uh, an awful lot more freedom to speak a little bit more freely about things when the kids... uh, are in the other room. Uh, so I'm going to do my best uh, this morning uh, to speak a little bit more covertly in a way that uh, even the Apostle Paul does here uh, in, in this section. But you'll notice here, as uh, chapter 7 then opens, we have the Apostle Paul uh, answering a question regarding marriage. You see that verse 1 begins, "...now concerning the matters about which you wrote." And so it appears then that we have a, a, a statement or a question that is coming from the Corinthian church, and they are asking Paul in regards to what should they do in regards to sexual immorality. And we saw that in chapter 6, we've seen that issue. And the Apostle Paul has addressed it in quite a bit of detail, the problem of sexual immorality. And he's going to use that as a way to begin to answer the questions that they have in regards to marriage in this chapter. You notice that uh, the way it is set out for us, the ESV says it is, not, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You may have one that just simply says uh, it may not touch a woman. It is good to not touch a woman. Uh, and that is an idiomatic phrase. And that's why some of the more modern translations will take that idiom and change it into like how the ESV has it reading not to have sexual relations because that's what that word means in the Greek literature uh, if you touched a woman you were talking about intimacy even in uh, the scriptures themselves in the Old Testament you see that that was a way to be able to speak of it in a rather uh, nice oblique kind of way Uh, so that's what this is doing and really the Corinthians then seem to be asking uh, well is there to be then no intimacy whatsoever and you can see why the This would fit in very well with what the Apostle Paul has talked about in chapter 6, where he has been condemning all kinds of sexual immorality, and he's condemned all sorts of every different thing that you can talk about. He is condemned from verse 9 all the way then to verse 20. But I think it is important to then take a moment and and ask the question, is is Paul saying in verse 1 that it is good then not to have any kind of relations whatsoever, or is he merely quoting the Corinthians? Uh, The ESV puts it in quotes, a a number of translations do that. Uh, Some of the other translations do not do that, which makes it then sound like what the Apostle Paul is saying is that you are not supposed to then have any. Relations at at all The New Living Translation kind of does it Very brazenly when it just says Now regarding the questions you have asked in your your Letter yes it is good To abstain from sexual relations Is that what Paul is saying Or should the quotation be there We have to recognize in the Greek there's not quotation marks And have that luxury to go well he's Quoting from them or he's not quoting From them but the reason I think To recognize that what he Is stating is not a command, but he is recording what they are saying is because of the weight of the evidence of the scriptures. We know the scriptures command intimacy. It would be illogical for the Apostle Paul to come along and say, well, all intimacy is wrong. Yes, you should avoid it. However, because of temptation, I guess you should go ahead. That's not what Genesis ever teaches. That's not what the scriptures ever teach. Remember in chapter 6, we saw this statement about how the the body was made for the Lord. But then he also said, and the Lord is for the body. In essence, God made your body the way that it is. It would be highly illogical for for Paul to come along and say, yes, God made your body, and your body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, but there's something wrong with that. Uh, That doesn't fit either. And I think it's important, we're going to touch on this a couple of times, what the Apostle Paul does in this section, is he is going to teach that intimacy is not a necessary evil. Uh, rather, it is a necessary good is what he's going to argue in the in the very next paragraph here. He's going to over and over again argue that this is something that is good. I think that's important to touch on because we do live uh, in a time where some religious groups will give you the idea that it's, this is a bad thing. This is a, a necessary evil rather than recognizing that God made our bodies, God created this and commanded this within the marriage realm. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to do. So I believe verse 1 then when we read that, what he is doing is stating what the Corinthians are saying. And you can kind of see two extremes then perhaps in that Corinthian church. We saw in chapter 6, some of them are saying, hey, you know, the body is for food and the food's for the body. And so the same thing for your fleshly desires, whatever you want to do. There's one extreme. And then the other extreme seems to be saying we need to stay away from it all altogether. Even if you're married, no relationship. Know into whatsoever, and so the apostle Paul is going to make this then very clear about marriage and how marriage then is useful in fighting against sexual immorality. You'll notice then, verse two, he says but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, and probably a, a way to get at that more this statement he's saying is because of all the kinds of different immoralities that are out there. Is It's interesting, sexual immorality here is actually the plural. that like all these immoralities that exist because of all of the problems of sexual immorality, he says that marriage then is supposed to be the solution to that problem. You see that there in verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband I think it's important to state right here out of the gate here though I do not believe the apostle Paul is saying well if you have a problem with the temptation of sexual immorality go get married (laughs) That is a very denigrating view of marriage and that's not the purpose of marriage. Well, you know, if you're just kind of having problems as a single, I guess you better go find somebody and there you go. Uh, the, The scriptures never describe marriage that way. Instead, it's a very high view of marriage that God has instituted. We recognize from the very beginning when God institutes that in Genesis that here you get a picture of it is for children to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth is the command of God. But you also read like in Proverbs 5 and when we studied Song of Solomon uh, over at, at my house and went through that study, it is for intimacy, it is intended for that, that God made it for that. But then a the very high view of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, remember what he says there that the, the husband and re- wife relationship is mirroring the relationship of Christ and the church. Well, that's a very high view of marriage. And so the point is not to say, hey, you know, if you're having trouble controlling yourself, get married. Rather, what he's pointing out is that one of the intentions that God had in instituting marriage was that it would maintain sexual purity. That this is the place where these desires are to be met is in marriage. And as chapter six is God extensively pointing out. Not in sexual immorality, not doing as we want, not just simply obeying our desires and doing whatever we please. That marriage is to be the solution then in regards to sexual immorality. I think it's also important to note one other thing. We're going to observe many times in our study here that the Apostle Paul is going to be somewhat idiomatic. And I, you have to respect that in the scriptures, how the scriptures are very clear on this topic, but is never just simply grotesquely over the top that you're like, it's shameful to read and, and anything like that. And, and he does that here in a number of occasions. For example, in verse 2, when he says that each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, that's another idiom that was used at that time to describe intimacy. It's not just simply saying go get married though he is certainly talking about marriage in this section but he is talking about these desires that are supposed to be fulfilled in marriage each man will have their own wife each woman will have their own husband and so again sometimes it's communicated that well intimacy is only supposed to be for bearing children that's not what the Scriptures ever said. It's not the picture of Proverbs. It's not the picture of Solomon. Solomon, And it's not the picture here. Here is the picture of intimacy is so that there is a fight against sexual temptation. It is the means by which God is given to ward off the attacks of the devil. Again, it is not a necessary evil, but a blessing and a good that God has given for the marriage relationship. Now, I'd like to observe one Aside that I think is an important aside as we consider verse 2 before we move on then to to verse 3, which is. Even in this statement, there are necessary prohibitions that are given. Even though in chapter 6, he explicitly said, here are the things that are sinful. This is what sexual immorality is. And he condemns all kinds of sexual behavior in chapter 6. But I want you to consider in verse 2 that he is excluding quite a few things here as well. For example, polygamy is definitely excluded because he's giving the command here, Each man should have his own wife, not wives. And each woman should have her own husband, not husbands. There's not this, well, you just kind of just accumulate however many you want. It's fine. No big deal. You get one. That's all you get. This is what marriage looks like in Genesis 2. One man, one woman for life. That's the way God had given it. Also consider the other prohibition that's implied as homosexuality is also condemned. It is also prohibited because he doesn't say, Now each man should have his own wife or husband, and each woman should have her own wife or husband. No, each man should have his own wife And each woman should have his own husband So even though chapter 6 explicitly said that Notice in chapter 7 he's saying that again as well As he is describing what the marriage relationship is For God is the one who instituted marriage He defines marriage And he then is the one that we must submit our lives to. And so he lays that out very clearly here. Because of immorality, here's what's supposed to happen. A man will marry a wife, and there will be intimacy there. And a woman will marry a husband, and there will be long then intimacy there. Not only that, then he continues on as he describes this. And notice that he doesn't just simply say, okay, it's okay. Their their statement is in verse 1, you know, it's no relations. It is good that we just don't touch a woman. It is good that there is no relations whatsoever. And his answer is not just simply, no, you're supposed to. Notice he's going to give quite a few arguments here as to why this is commanded by God and why this is critically important. In verse 2, his argument is because of sexual immorality. This is the way to fight off sexual immorality. This must happen then within marriage. Verse 3 is another interesting picture where it says there in verse 3, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. This is an interesting way that, that he words this because he describes this in a way that makes it sound like an obligation. And I know the intention is not for us to look at marriage and look into this and go, well, it's a duty and this is something that you have to do. But you'll see what he's getting at is the language is and the meaning is to give what is due or to give back that which is owed. And the point of what the Apostle Paul is saying here, then, is that we have a God given responsibility to give the sex to fulfill the sexual needs of our spouse because it is the right of marriage. That's what verse three is saying. He calls it a right here. This is a duty to give back what is owed is literally what that is. And to be able to fight against temptation. And so he uses two pictures here now. We're fighting against temptation and that when we enter into marriage, we are recognizing that we are entering into an obligation that exists one for another. And I think that's another important picture then of what God wants for us to understand in regarding marriage, that this is part of proper marital expectations. And again, that intimacy is not a necessary evil but it is to be given as something that is owed. It is part of what the marriage relationship is about. Verse 4 explains and presses that even further. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And we need to talk about that for a minute. Because that's, I think, a really important pressing of the point. Here's a statement. The wife has authority over the husband's body and the husband has authority over the wife's body. And I think we need to understand this when we're getting married. This is probably something really important to communicate to people that are are getting married. And it shouldn't be a shocking idea for Christians that you are giving yourself completely in marriage. That's the picture that is happening here is what we are doing in marriage is saying, I'm going to do what you desire. You're going to do what I desire. That's what we're entering into when we come into this marriage covenant is that we are entrusting our bodies uh, and giving those rights over to our spouse. I want you to recognize this was an extraordinarily liberating teaching for the first century. You know, for us, we read that and kind of go, okay, sure. Sure. In that day and time, this is an extraordinary teaching. In the Roman world, where men dominated women, this is an extraordinary teaching in both Greek and in Jewish cultures. The husband was in charge of his wife in all ways, including sexually. But the husband had very few obligations, if any, to his wife except for one thing, bearing a child. That was the way it went. And notice the equality that the Apostle Paul has given in each of these statements. In verse 2, verse 3, and in verse 4, he speaks of this very equilaterally. The husband for the wife and the wife for the husband. That this is equal before God. And notice the picture that is stated here in verse 4. It says that this is something that we are giving. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is a picture of what we are doing in marriage is that we are giving ourselves, that we are giving of ourselves in marriage to the other person. That's the picture that's being given here. It is not a picture of domineering. It is not a picture of taking. It is not a picture of demanding. We should know that because guess what? Any kind of selfishness destroys a marriage. What is not being said here is, all right, guys, you get to do whatever you want to do or okay, women, you get to do whatever you want to do because that's your body. Now you can do whatever you want to. That's not what he's getting at here. What he is driving at is a beautiful picture of giving ourselves to the other person. That as Christians, then we are desiring to do what the other person wants. We have entered into this marriage and we are then desiring to be pleasing to the other person. And that's what's being pictured here is that you've come into this marriage relationship desiring to do that, to give ourselves completely over in marriage. I think it's a useful point here at this moment that I'm bringing in a lot of the questions that were brought up in this, this kind of section to talk about here. And I think it's important to consider here Well, What is lawful then? Here's the statement here in verse 4. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body. The husband does likewise. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Are there any limits or things that are unlawful then in regards to, to marriage? And I think it's important again that Paul's concern in this section is a concern that people are not giving themselves enough in marriage. He's writing this and saying There is a problem of sexual immorality That's why I like the plural there of uh, of Verse 2 There's all kinds of sexual immoralities It's very much a world that we live in Very much like the Corinthian world Where you have all of this going on around you And so this is supposed to be the means To combat that And so I'd recognize then That between a husband and wife Is that all intimacy is acceptable before God Uh, God doesn't give any prohibition there's nothing in the scriptures that we could point to and say here's where is something wrong but I would like to put two things that I think are the implied obvious things that we need to to cap that with Uh, because I've heard that these things come up before so I want to make sure I'm closing all the back doors and loopholes and any possibilities here number one just because a husband and wife agree upon certain things, like having a third party uh, involved, does not make that okay. okay? Uh, some people are like, oh, we, we pornography or have open marriages, things like that. No, you're violating the marriage covenant. You are violating the one man and one woman. There's not supposed to be anybody else. Uh, the world that we have right now about this openness, and it's sinful. It is completely wrong. It is completely sinful. The other disclaimer that I think we need to state about this is, is that there shouldn't be demands in marriage, then. There shouldn't be uh, forcing or selfish fulfillment or anything like that. That I hope we would recognize what God sets up here in these three verses is amazingly beautiful of how He puts this. Here is a husband and a wife, and they want to do what the other person wants. And at the same time, what they're doing is saying, I don't want to do something that you wouldn't want to do. And I think that's very important, is that marriage is very much about giving of the other person. Marriage is very much about recognizing my love means I will constrain myself and do what you desire. That's what the whole point of marriage is. What is for your good? What is for your desire? What you want? That's what I want to do. And that should also carry into this area as well, and so yes, there's freedom to do things together as God has given no prohibitions, but recognize this is not the place for selfishness, that this is the place that we are supposed to then have a concern for one another and to then do that appropriately before God.) <sighs> I've thought a long time about. Uh, I was praying a lot this morning about this lesson. So let's let's say that I, I do want to use one illustration of a, of a, of many people that I have come across that I think that's important for us to use to try to get an understanding of what this text is is about. Uh, it's important to recognize the importance of this aspect in marriage. There's a reason why. God immediately speaks to Adam and Eve and this is leaving father and mother and being joined to to one another to becoming one flesh. Why the Apostle Paul spends so much time in this section talking about this is it is a recognition that we must be desiring to do our very best to help the other person in dealing with sexual temptation and fulfilling the desires. A spouse should want to fulfill uh, Spouses should want to fulfill each other uh, while at the same time not forcing them to do things that they do not want to do, that we would want to please our spouse and do what is in their best interest and not make them do things or be unpleasant toward them uh, in the slightest. And I don't know how other nice way to say that, <laughs> except just to say it like that, that we would recognize the dynamics of being a Christian in marriage goes all the way. We should desire what's in the other person's best interest. And to be selfishly demanding, either in regards to what we want or don't want, is very important to recognize that becomes a problem in marriage. I unfortunately have seen far too many Christians divorce because of that very problem. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. That this is supposed to be the solution for these desires. And it's supposed to be a working together for that in marriage. Which is what verse 5 gets to. Notice verse 5. He says, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack lack of self-control. But I say this now as a concession, not as a command. I think this is really important especially because uh, the word here where he says do not deprive one another it is the same word that was used back in chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8 where you read about these Christians where they are are being defrauded and cheating and he says why not just be defrauded remember they're taking each other to court why not just be defrauded why not just be cheated and so it's the same word that's here and he gives now a third argument argument about intimacy in marriage and says, you're cheating the other person. You are defrauding the other person out of something that they are supposed to have in marriage. And so the Apostle Paul is simply saying that intimacy is not supposed to stop in marriage. The picture of verse 1 seems to give the indication, they're saying well, we should just stop for any old reason. And he says, no, that shouldn't be. And then he pauses and he says, but I'll give you one concession. My one concession is for prayer. But even with that concession of prayer, notice all the limitations that he puts on that. He says it has to be by agreement. So this is not a unilateral decision. It has to be for a limited time. It has to be just not just unending. It has to be for a spiritual need. We're doing it for prayer. And we must come back together physically so that the temptation does not uh, overcome them. Point being here is that this is not supposed to be used as a weapon in a fight. And that happens in marriage it 's not supposed to be used as a weapon in a fight he 's using this and saying don 't deprive one another don 't defraud one another. You are cheating one another if you withhold intimacy in marriage. So notice that the three things that he 's gotten at here in verse two, he said they are supposed to be the fulfillment of those desires in marriage in verse three, he says, "We are giving what is owed, it is our obligation, it is what is due to a marriage in verse four he 's given a picture that hey we are signing up in marriage and saying, I am giving myself to you, you are giving yourself to me. And there's a wonderful picture that comes together in marriage. In verse 5 now he says, don't defraud one another. If you withhold these things, you are depriving, cheating, defrauding. And that's not supposed to happen in marriage either. And verse 6 then ties with that. I, I don't like the, the big number 6 right there, but that ties to verse 5, not to verse 7. This is the concession. This is the only one reason that that's supposed to stop stop, uh, any kind of intimacy in marriage. And even with that, by agreement, a limited time for a spiritual need resulting in them coming back together again. This leads to another important conclusion, though. I have seen Christians make this decision. We know that it's a sin to divorce. and We don't have the right reason to get a divorce. So what we are going to do is we are going to have a separation. And what we mean by that is we're still technically married, but we don't live together. We live completely separate lives. We basically never see each other again. We just agree to live as single people, even though we are still married. So we don't violate the God's law that says don't divorce. And I hope that you would see that also is a sin. You're just changing one sin for another. Yep, divorce is a sin. But notice how he has commanded through five verses here that intimacy must happen in marriage. Separation can't exist. Separation isn't supposed to happen. That's not an option then, as if that were a solution then rather than divorcing. And so rather than that, there needs to be reconciliation, which we'll talk about next week, Lord willing, which is what he'll get to. Verse seven. One other thing, I wish that all were as my, I myself am, but each has his own gift from God—one from of one kind and one of another. Now, sometimes verse six is attached to verse seven, and so I say this as a concession, not a command. But I wish everybody were like myself and. Most of the implications and the writers give the indication that Paul is saying that he wishes that people were single like him. Most commentators I have say that a couple of translations link it together that way that I wish everybody were single. uh, But I'm only saying that as a concession and not a command. Uh, Here's why I think I'm sorry, I'm going to be really rude and just say why I think that's ridiculous. And that's not what he's saying at all. Number one, if everybody is single, that'd be the end of the human race. Uh, it's just hard for me to understand that the Apostle Paul is saying, I really wish everybody would be single, but, you know, since you all can't control yourselves, I guess we'll have to have marriage as an option. Uh, what? Uh, I just don't see that that's the thing that he's saying. Second, remember, God instituted marriage. God did not give that as, a well, Adam was doing just fine, and but, you know, then things kind of went sideways, and so I guess we better create a woman and have marriage. There's only one thing in all of creation that was not good. Man being alone. So to come along and go, well, the ideal is singleness violates what God saw from the very beginning, that man being alone is not a good solution. Man was better by having a companion, and that's what God created. Now the scene was good. By the way, this whole chapter's been praising marriage, hasn't it? All this is doing is gushing about the blessings of marriage. Here's what's supposed to happen in marriage. Here's what God commanded. Here's why marriage is good. Here's what's supposed to happen in that. And then I would just tack off on the end and say, is he really saying that being single is a gift of God? Come on. I really struggle saying, well, you know, being single is a gift and we all have our own gifts and I've got mine and you've got yours and I wish you had my gift of being single, but you don't. I don't like that interpretive solution at all verse six fits much more naturally with verse five they're saying no relations in marriage Paul says absolutely not do not deprive one another but I give you a concession not a command for prayer for a limited time and then come back together again there's my concession not a command not, you don't have to do that But if you're wanting any kind of time separated, it better be for a spiritual need for a limited time. That's the concession. So what is the Apostle Paul saying here? I believe what the Apostle Paul is simply saying is the whole context of what chapter 6 and chapter 7 have been about. Is that I wish that people are like myself and free from the need of sexual fulfillment. But that makes much more sense of what would be a gift. Some people have strong sexual temptations and sexual urges and some don't. And everybody is different with that. You may know of I know of quite a few preachers who have devoted themselves to a life of singleness. That's a great gift that they don't have these pressing temptations. And some people have that. And I think that what he's recognizing here is each of us have a different realm of temptations that we fight against. And Satan comes at us with one thing or another thing. And some things are easier for you than for others. It's like I've mentioned before uh, in in Bible class. I don't walk into Publix and think, boy, I should steal this gum and steal the milk. Uh, Not a temptation. Not an issue. So if you call that a gift, okay, fair enough. There's one gift I bet you may not have that gift. That's all he's getting at here is, I wish that people were free from from the temptations that, that are occurring, especially in that Corinthian culture. He wishes that just like Paul had that, that freedom, but not everybody does. Thus he is pointing out, this is one of the great benefits of Marriage. So in conclusion, then what Paul teaches here, I think, is so radical, not only to what would have been the culture of that day, but sometimes is radical even to what the religious culture says about marriage is that marriage is given by God. It is a gift from God. It's to be governed by God. Very simple layout right here. If we were bought with a price, which is how chapter six ends, and we belong to him and we are temples to him then when it comes to marriage, we recognize that God rules over our marriage and we must submit to what God says marriage is supposed to be. We follow the commands that He has given to us and it is a beautiful gift. It is not some kind of evil and intimacy in marriage is not some kind of evil. I hate that that's kind of been a historical concept about marriage and about intimacy in general. That's never what the Scriptures paint. It's not what the Proverbs paint. It is not what Song of Solomon paints. It's not what Genesis paints. It's not what this text paints. It is always pictured as instituted by God. God made your bodies. God made marriage. God made for this to be the case. There's nothing wrong with these things as long as they are in marriage. That's what chapter 6 has been about. Chapter 6 is if it's outside of marriage, it is wrong. Inside of marriage, that is where these things are to be fulfilled. That's where these things belong. That's how the Lord is for our bodies. And then just to recognize the importance of intimacy in marriage. Verse 2, it is a fight against sexual immorality. Men, we are helping our wives fight against sexual immorality, which is growing stronger and stronger in attack against women now. Fifty Shades of Grey and all these kinds of things that are going on might No, no, it's not Mike and Mike something Mike movie with guys and strippers And it's just amazing how this has become Such a prevalent, prevalent pushing now To try to sexualize men for women now as well Where it used to be kind of more a lopsided thing With this issue for men Now it's also for women Men, you're supposed to then help them fight against sexual immorality. Women, you're helping your husband fight against sexual immorality. Marital intimacy then is to be understood to be a right that is given to each other in marriage It's not taken It is not then something that we are forcing But recognizing it is a right of marriage It's an expectation of marriage And it is something to be given in marriage Verse 3 also tells us That we are supposed to desire them To give to our spouse That we recognize that that's what we've entered into marriage That we have entered into marriage To give of ourselves completely What they need physically Spiritually Emotionally That's what we are supposed to be giving as spouses for one another. We are there for the whole aspect. And then verse 4, marital intimacy is supposed to be where the the desires are to be fulfilled, not outside of marriage. And finally, then verse 5, marital intimacy is to never be deprived. The Apostle Paul is extremely practical. You may not have known that text was there and all that, but it really great directions that the Apostle Paul gives of what a marriage is supposed to look like. And the joy of marriage and the joy of being able to give to our spouse what they need and what they desire, that's what the marriage relationship is supposed to look like. As I mentioned at the beginning, if you have other questions, I'll keep infusing them into these lessons. And as you can see, you will not be called out, and I will not embarrass you, and nobody will know the better, but I will take your various questions and stick them in there, uh, and we'll keep moving forward. And next week he's going to talk about, so is divorce okay, and when is it okay? And so keep looking forward to these things. You pull your songbooks out, we'll sing invitation song. And I hope that as we study this and we now have this invitation that you would think about for a moment the wisdom of God. How amazing that God is. That here is this creation scene in the book of Genesis. He creates the the earth and He creates all that is in it. And then He creates man in his own image and woman in his own image and what a blessing it is that God has created man and woman to be complements to one another that could be joined together in marriage for life <laughs> it is it is shameful how our world has completely denigrated and destroyed the beauty of what God has created for a husband and a wife. And I hope that this will reorient your mind to what is what God's view and plan for marriage is. And then I hope it'll take you even further to praise God because of his wisdom to have set these things in motion for our good and for our benefit. God could have made it just made us walk this life as single individuals Just simply, you know, serve the Lord, be by yourself, and hope it works out. But to create a scenario where we could have a close relationship with another person that is like no other on the planet. Very beautiful what God has done. So when you come to the all-knowing, all-powerful God this very day, will you turn away from your sins? Recognize that Jesus is the Son of God who came, who died for your sins. Will you turn away from your life of sinfulness and life of selfish living and recognize that God is supreme, He rules over heaven and earth, and we are to submit our lives to Him. Will you come to Him this very, very day? Will you be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can walk faithfully before Him, having your sins washed away? Won't you come now? While we stand and while we say?